Glad to see you all this morning. Glad, thank you for making the shift from the coke room over to the chapel. I will admit that I don't love the chapel for something like this. I, ideally, I would like you to have a table to be able to put your stuff on. We have no room with the tables like this. And so I love that problem. I think in the next few years, we will solve that problem. So just keep that in your mind, you know, when you are frustrated with having no table, that maybe later on you'll help us get rooms with tables, right? It'd be great. So I wanted to take a minute to introduce Eric Lyles. Eric is our new associate for formation. I hope you have kind of heard his name around, um, but he focuses on Sunday mornings, particularly on Sunday school education, formation experiences for all of us, children, youth, and adults. And so he's running around the hallways, helping support the teachers and volunteers and making sure lost children get to their classrooms and that sort of stuff. And so I want him to come and just say hello to you all so that you can put a face with a name. So. Hello. <laughs> hey, there you go. Thank you, Eric. So Susan wanted me to make sure that you all knew. Um, if this is your first week, we're glad that you're here. Um, if you were here last week, I hope that you signed up on the sheet with your information. What we did is we put all that information in our system and produced some sheets that you can just check it and confirm it. Those sheets will be outside the rear doors and the side door after the class. So if you did not have a chance to look over those sheets and confirm your information, please do so on your way out. And if you have not signed up yet, because this is your first week, then please do so. There'll be just a blank sheet for you to add your name and email address for us so we can make sure that you keep all of this stuff in line. Let's talk just a second about logistics. We had intended that this would shift between 11 o'clock and 10 o'clock based on when there were one of St. Michael luncheons. And I am afraid that changing the dates Changing the dates or the times each week will become messy. Um, and so this is, my, this is my leaning, is that we compromise and do 10.30. And that way at 10.30, even on the days of the luncheon, I just will not go long. We will end a little early. Everyone can get downstairs for the luncheon. And on the days without luncheons, no problem. It's 10.30. Now, here is the question that I'm not supposed to ask you. Is there anyone who really can't do 10.30? Oh, no, 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 we're going to be done. Healing service is done at 10.30, if you start on time. Yeah, it will be, because we're going to make sure. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm doing it next week, so guess what? It's going to end by 10.30. Um, no, we will, we will fix that. We will make sure that the healing service does not run into Bible study. Um, so I'm actually super excited that I only saw three hands. That's really great. Yeah, that was three. I saw you. Um, so that's great. Okay, so let's... I will confirm this in writing to you in an email, but we will just, starting next week, do this at 1030, and that way it doesn't change. You can just mark it in. It's on 1030, at 10.30, and if there's a luncheon, we'll end with enough time for you to get downstairs, get your name tags, say hi to everybody before the luncheon gets rolling. And on the days when we don't have luncheons, we're just done, and you can have your own luncheon wherever you want. So 10.30 starting next week. Thank you all for that. Um, we'll, try, we'll squeeze it in and make it work. Last week, 
I mentioned a number of books and I emailed all of you with the titles and authors of those books. So I've had a few people say, hey, that one sounded really neat, I want that one. It should be in that email. If you were here last week and you did not get an email from me, something is not right and we want to make sure it is fixed. It is likely that either you're not on the list or there's some kind of spam filter issue on your end and we can help. And so if you did not get an email from me, then please see me or see Susan Kalen after the Bible study today and we'll make sure we get that worked out. If you have a question about any of the texts that we discussed last week, feel free to shoot me an email. Um, if you can't find them online, actually one person emailed me and said I went to buy the message because having a paraphrase sounded like a good idea. And she said there are so many different ones, which one should I get? Which is such a great question because it allows me to tell you it is like a translation, right? So there is a text that is the message that has been formatted a hundred different ways, right? It's sort of like saying, so I have an Oxford annotated NRSV, right? A new revised standard version that I got when I was 18, a freshman in college, and I'm just not going to update it because it's my Bible. And so this is the one I use, but there are a hundred different versions of the NRSV. The message is the same way, right? It has been formatted and reformatted and reformatted for many different kinds of groups with different kind of questions in it, different kind of footnotes in it, but the text of it is the same. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you find one you like, just get it. Large print, small print, pocket edition, something for women, whatever, right? I mean, they come, they will sell it to you however you want to buy it, okay? <laughs> Let's get started with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together again this week, for enlivening in us a desire to know your word better, that it will help open up the faith you have handed down to us so that our relationship with you will deepen every week. Be with us as we study Luke Help us to ask the best questions we can, that we may understand what you'd have us do in the world to the glory of your kingdom. All this we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this week, we are looking at the first chapter of Luke. Last week, we talked about the formation of the canon, very loosely. How we got the Bible, how the Bible was translated over time, how the Bible is translated today. And I hope that that helped you get a little bit of a, of a handle. You all are so far away from me. Hi. I know. Hey. Is it a... Is this okay on the floor? Eh, I'm not very tall. Is this... I mean, can you not see... My mom's five feet tall, so I'm always very sensitive to people who have some vertical challenges. Um, this might be kind of, kind of precious, but I may get a little stool or something to stand on. Um, that would be hard, because the alternative is that I do it from up there, which is not, not necessary. Um, stop it. I'll fix that next week. All right, so hang with me all the way in the back. Sorry about that. 
So we talked about the canon, how it was formed. Today, just before we get into Luke, I want to talk about the Gospels. We talked a little bit about how the synoptics are alike, how John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what I wanted to show you today, another book, there were lots of Gospels written about Jesus, right? We have four of them, but there were dozens that were written that we know of. There could have been many, many more. I mean, almost certainly there were many, many more that were written that just didn't survive. And they didn't survive for many reasons. Some of them may have just not been good stories, right? I mean, the bottom line is if you've got lots of books about, how about this? If you read biographies, right? I remember, what was it? Oh my gosh, it makes me feel old. Like 25 years ago, when did John Adams come out? Remember, was it David McCullough that wrote John Adams, right? And everyone got so excited about John Adams. Wait, that had to have been the hundredth biography of John Adams that had come out, but something about the way he told that story really hooked a lot of people. It's very similar to that about the Gospels, right? Jesus was, was a great guy, affected a lot of people, and so people were telling stories about him, but some people, m most of us, are not great storytellers. Or if we're a good storyteller orally, we're not a great storyteller in writing. But a few people are. And so in essence, what happened over time is that the ones that just weren't that great ended up sort of being left by the wayside. You know, if you had a biography of Jesus and you got a better one, you're probably not gonna keep the one that isn't so great. You're gonna keep the better one. And over the course of a few decades, the ones that everyone really liked were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It does not mean others did not exist. It just means that there was something about them that was either incomplete, something about them that wasn't as compelling, something about them that wasn't as insightful. And the ones we have in our canon, in our Bible, are the ones that were. If you are interested in reading any of the non-canonical Gospels, all right? So the canon is what we have in the Bible. So non-canonical Gospels will be the ones that just aren't in it. You can find them online. You can Google sort of other Gospels and find examples of some. And you can also find books that have been published. This one's called The Complete Gospels. And these are basically all of the Gospels we know that survived. For some in this book, it's just fragments, half sentences that we simply know are about Jesus. Some of them, though, there are whole passages that survived. It is important for us to maintain the authority of the canon, right? But it's also, I think, important to us that we know that what is in the Bible is not the only stuff that was written that can help us understand the way people experience God, right? It would be like reading the words or works or essays on saints that saints wrote, right? About their experience with God. It isn't scripture, but it's good stuff, right? And we believe that those people are holy people. And we believe that they were inspired by the spirit to live a certain way of life and to write about that way of life and it can help us live our lives better. And so just like you might read Julian of Norwich or something from St. Benedict or whomever, reading some of these non-canonical gospels might be sort of interesting. 
I will tell you that some of the infancy gospels are fascinating because it gets at the humanity of Jesus. I said last week that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tend to have a lower Christology, right? I'll, let me say that in English. They have less of an idea about Christ and focus more on Jesus of Nazareth. John, though, elevates the Christology, the understanding of Jesus as Christ. And so for Christians, we love John because he really gets at the Christ in Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, tend to hearken back to what some of the earliest Gospels were, which focusing really on the um, incredible humanity of Jesus. There's always divinity in there. But there's, there's one infancy gospel that reminds me so much of Harry Potter, where Jesus is playing in the street, and there's a boy who kills an animal, and Jesus, has, Jesus strikes the boy down and kills the boy. And Joseph comes running out of his house and says, Jesus, you can't do that. Bring him back to life. And Jesus says, okay. And so brings the boy back to life. I mean, can you imagine... Here is Jesus as a child who can do stuff, right? I mean, he's got God. He is God incarnate. And so, but he doesn't understand, right? I mean, how many seven-year-olds do you know if they could kill somebody, you know, who stole their toy, they might. And so Jesus wrestles with this, right? He kind of goes, why did, why did Jesus not really start his ministry until he was 30? He was figuring this out. And I think we can be confident and faithful in believing that Jesus figured this out. He was human, and his humanity, along with his divinity, is what compels me most to follow him, right? The whole story of Christianity is not that God is at arm's length, right? But that God is right here with us. That when we have our hearts broken, Jesus did too. God gets it. And when things are lost or when we feel challenged or insulted or all of those things, so was God in the person of Jesus. And so just as an aside, Gospels have a lot that can tell us about Jesus. And as we study Luke, if you've studied any of the other canonical Gospels, you'll find that the portrait of Jesus is very unique in Luke to the other Gospels. It is not the same. They're simply telling the story about a person who was way too dynamic to be contained in just a few pages. And so Luke had to have an angle. And so last week I, I told you that Luke's angle was to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And so much of what Luke focuses on about Jesus's life has to do with issues that the Jews might not find as compelling. But we, most of us in this room, were likely not raised Jewish. Most of us would like Luke's perspective because he goes beyond the law that Matthew focuses on and goes much more into just general living in his storytelling. Okay, so let's jump in. First thing I want to make sure you know is that in your companion book, at the very introduction, is a map. And in that map, you will see more or less the area of Israel 
where Jesus lived. Your study Bibles will have great maps as well. I do want you this week to take a look at the maps. If you're not a map person, or if you've never really looked at this map, because one of the things that to keep in mind is that Jesus's entire life happened within about 120 miles. All right, that is less than Dallas to Texarkana or Dallas to Waco, right? Jesus's world, his physical geographic world was very small. And so for us to get kind of in our mind the smallness of the gospel world, I think will help us understand the intimacy of the relationships that Jesus maintains throughout his ministry. The Gospel of Luke begins with an introduction to a guy named Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Theophilus is potentially not even a person. Theophilus in Greek means lover of God. Right? Theophilus, or Theophilus, God lover. It is very possible, maybe even likely, that Luke is using a literary technique to write to us. Right? He is writing this story for the God lovers. And so for all of us who love God, he wants us to know something about this person, Jesus. Very quickly, the author of Luke, I'm, okay, I'm not going to say the author of Luke all the time, I'm just going to say Luke. Luke transitions into setting the historic context of Jesus' life. Now, there are lots of articles, I'll have to find one and share it with you, that people have written, scholars have written, about the incredible opportunity that God had at this place in this period of time that the Roman Empire had evolved to a point where communication was incredibly effective, where the, the influence that the Romans had over lands like Palestine was becoming very charged, right? People weren't really happy living under Roman rule, and that there was a, there was a historic tipping point right now when Jesus is born that really facilitated the incredible effect that Jesus had on the entire world. That had Jesus been born a couple hundred years earlier or a couple hundred years later, that the, the geopolitical opportunity of the time would not have been so rich. And so Luke likely has some sense of that. And so he wants to make sure we know what was going on in the world when Jesus was born. And so we get very quickly, after that intro to, to Theophilus, placing Jesus in time. The whole first chapter of Luke, assuming you've read it, oh, let's talk for a second about that. It will never be necessary for you to read anything to come to Bible study. However, you will get a whole lot more out of the study if you do at least read the scripture passage. And it really is about one chapter a week. So this is not, uh, it's not a high investment, okay? One chapter a week. The commentary, Lowell, come up front and take a picture from up here. The commentary is also 
very helpful, but again, not necessary, because I'm gonna use it as a springboard, and if you didn't read it, it's not the end of the world. So Lowell is going to satisfy my desire for media and, <laughs> and take a picture of you beautiful people filling up the chapel. So, take one. Smile. He's too short. He's too short. Man, that's rough. So, hold on. Here you go. Here you go. Smile. Oh, jeez. What, what is this one? Is this a fish eye? Here we go. Yeah, can we? Here we go. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you. The entire first chapter of Luke, assuming you've read it, sets up the stage for Jesus, right? Jesus isn't here yet in chapter one. It's about John. John, as the one who will proclaim the coming of the Messiah, right? The voice crying out in the wilderness to make way the path of the Lord. So Luke takes this opportunity to set up John to then also create a context for Mary and Jesus. So Luke begins the story with Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Zechariah serves the temple. And Zechariah gets chosen that day to go into the temple and offer incense. And so if you've ever seen a picture of the temple in Jerusalem, it's like concentric circles of, of influence or privacy or holiness. So on the outer ring, everybody's there. On the inner ring, only the cleansed Jews can be there. And then as you go into the center, to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, you have to be a priest, and then you've got to be like a really good priest, and then you've got to be the high priest. So Zechariah is some kind of priest. So he can get in to more of the temple than maybe the average Jewish person, but he's not the high priest. And so that day he gets in there and an angel shows up and begins speaking to him. Angels in scripture are not fat babies. All right? Yeah. Angels look, and we, we sort of get this, right? Because it's, we're St. Michael. So we kind of have this image of angels are serious, all right? They are, they are warriors. And so angels, like Gabriel in this, in this chapter and the next, are not pretty and calming, okay? An angel would scare you to death. And so put yourself in Zechariah's place. When Gabriel shows up, I mean, he, he needed a change of pants, right? I mean, this is, a, this is a serious moment. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, this is what's going to happen. You and Elizabeth, who have not been able to have children, even though you are old, are going to bear a child. And that child is going to be important 
to the work that I am doing in the world, right? Gabriel says this on behalf of God, and Zechariah challenges this idea, right? Who, who am I? I am old, and my wife is old, and how is this whole thing going to happen? And Gabriel says, for that, you will not be able to speak until John is born, right? So I kind of love this scene, because Gabriel shows up, scares him to death, and Zechariah doesn't say it can't happen, he just simply says, is, is, seriously? Like, really? Because, and what I loved about N.T. Wright in our, in our companion volume is he made sure to point out that although much of biology was unknown at this point, they did know how babies were formed. All right. And so really what Zechariah is saying is, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure all that's in the past, right? I mean, like, we have, we have stopped that at this point. And so Gabriel says, no, no, no. Nothing's impossible with God. Now I hope, I hope, you immediately thought of another story in Scripture. Which would have been who? Abraham. Abraham. Thank you, okay? The Bible repeats itself over and over again. This theme of being barren and then being blessed with a child is cyclical. It is also literary. So Luke, who would have known all that stuff, would have signaled to anyone hearing this story who knew anything about the Jews, this is something like Abraham. This is special. Right? This is going to matter on the scale of Abraham and Sarah. So even though it was not said, this story reflects almost identically Abraham saying, I'm too old. Sarah's too old. Zechariah says, I'm too old. And Elizabeth's too old. And they hear, whether from the visitors or from Gabriel, nothing is impossible with God. And so Zechariah is struck mute, and he leaves the temple, and I imagine that he started flailing his arms trying to tell people whatever had happened. I love that in Scripture it says, they knew Zechariah had had a vision, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sherlock right there. Um, I can remember being in seminary, and we would have quiet days right? And the seminarians, I forget if it was once, twice a year or four times a year or something like that. And we would show up at 8 a.m., we would do morning prayer, and then we had a quiet day until the end of day prayer at 5 p.m. Being quiet's hard for me. And so I would go into the quiet, the first quiet day I thought, I cannot be quiet all day. So I figured, like all these sweet introverted priests or like seminarians that I was with, they can go to five, that's great. If I can get to noon, that is much more meaningful to me than it is to all of these quiet people getting to five o'clock. And so we started the quiet day and I immediately walked out of the chapel and doing, doing this. And someone, one of the professors walked up to me and said, quiet is not just volume. And I said, so I can imagine that Zechariah is sort of that way. Like, you know, I mean, he can't tell anybody anything because he can't speak. But he's letting them know something has happened, right? And sweet Elizabeth probably would have loved to have heard this story, but, you know, she couldn't. Yeah. So the question is, why would God speak directly 
sort of in the Old Testament, particularly in the historic patriarch period, and speak through agents, perhaps in the New Testament, specifically angels. It's a bigger answer, and not all of you know me well enough, but I want you to hang with me as I give you my opinion, all right? Just my opinion. When people told the story of hearing God, we use that language today, right? I am sure multiple people in this room have said to someone at some point, I think God's telling me to X. Now, we know that that person is probably not actually saying a voice spoke and I heard it and so I'll do it, but rather I heard it, right? I heard God speak to me, not physically, but in my spirit. However, if that, if your friend were to tell their friend that you heard God say this, and then their friend were to tell another friend about how you heard God say this, it could very easily become that God spoke out loud to you, told you X, and then you did it. Maybe not in modernity would we necessarily get to that point, but if you put yourself in the ancient world and people received a message from God, even if that the receiving of that message was in a spiritual sense, when that story was told over and over and over again and written down hundreds of years later, that story was not about the Spirit. God spoke. I think that with all of these ancient stories, that is likely the progression that brought the story to the place where we have received it in writing. Remember, this is an oral culture, right? Writing is not common because people aren't literate. And so they're telling the story and telling the story, and those stories could have literally been told hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, before they were actually written. How many nuanced changes could have happened in that oral story over time? Because no one was writing with Moses, right? Nobody was sitting with Abraham. You know, Abraham didn't walk out and look at the sand and look at the stars and then come back to the tent and be like, write this down. God said, I mean, that, that wasn't happening, right? He was explaining an experience of God that transcends our understanding of the world. And that transcendence is lost when we write it down. And so there is... It's good to write, but it's also, I think, better to just speak it. Functionally, I think that we should not ever make the argument that God said this based on what the Old Testament, stories in the Old Testament. It's dangerous because with pretty much no exceptions, the people to whom God spoke did not write that story. And so we can receive those stories as true without it being historic in the same sense. It happened. But I think that our definition of, of history 
is based on an 18th century shift, which meant if I were to say how many people are in this room, you are likely to think I'm trying to be as accurate as possible, except I'm a preacher, so you know it's going to be inflated. Um, <laughs> but I think that when we do historic record now, we are seeking accuracy. Before about the 18th century, the desire for accuracy was not the point of history. The point of history was a story. It was inspirational or aspirational. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind when we read the entire Bible, right? It is all true. But I think we go too far when we make the argument that it, someone said exactly that. Because it's, that is too difficult to ever really guarantee. Was that too meandering? No. You want to follow up? Okay, so the question is about Samuel going to anoint David, right? Because Saul is just not getting it done, right? Saul, the first king of all Israel, of all Israel is just can't make it work, right? He's just kind of a mess. And so as the story goes, Samuel's talking with God, and God says, you've got to go anoint another person, right? Because Saul just isn't working out. And Samuel defends Saul at first because Saul... He also anointed Saul. And so it's kind of like Samuel didn't get it right a little bit. God says, go find another. Go to the house of Jesse. And so it's a great story of how Jesse goes and lines up all of his sons. Samuel does what? I don't know. It's like the sorting hat again, right? Sorry, it's not going to all be Harry Potter. Um, and he, he looks at all these people and he's like, these are all nice boys, but th none of these boys are the right, is the right guy. So there must be someone else. And so Jesse says, actually, yes, it's the young one, and he's out in the field, and Samuel sees him and says, oh, he's it, right? Boom, horn and oil, and he's anointed, and it's great. And then you've got the big mess of there's an anointed king, but there's still a king, right? And so that's all messy. That's a, it's a good example of where is God in that? And do I... I can only speak for me, okay? Do I think that Samuel is having a conversation with a disembodied voice? No. There is a desire to anthropomorphize God, right? To give God our characteristics. When we do that, we lessen God, all right? That I am very sure of. God is not us. God transcends everything we understand, everything we see, everything we can know. And when we attempt to make God like us, we miss the good stuff. And I think that prophets are speaking truth, truth they very much have received from God. But is there the voice I mean, I, I think that that makes it a little too magical. You know, I, I try to resist God the magician because it makes sense to us, right? I mean, we, we, I think it, I think if God becomes too much like a, a quick change artist, right? Or like, look over there, no, it's over here, you know, an illusionist, it, it doesn't, 
it doesn't work for me. And so I, I'm the kind of priest where if I'm celebrating, I don't move my hands a lot because I feel like it can too quickly look like a card trick. You know, I mean, I've seen lots of priests who are like razzle-dazzle on the altar and it looks a little too much like magic. Um, and I, I think that in many ways we can make God a magician if we're not careful. And so this is a difficult tension to live into, okay? What I am saying to you is very easily heretical if you want to push on it because it seems like the indication is that scripture is untrue and it is not untrue. It is very true. These stories are very true, but we have to maintain their truth and not kind of get into the weeds of specificity, right? We all have friends and we may have done this who want to say, God said this is black and white. We just, we really can't do that unless it's Jesus, right? I mean, for me as a follower of Jesus, if all four gospels said Jesus said something, you know, Jesus probably said that. And we can sort of make that an anchor. And you want to know more or less what Jesus said in all four Gospels? You hear it on Sundays because we say it at the table, right? The Last Supper. And Jesus pretty much all in all four Gospels said you got to love each other. It's hard to go much farther, friends. Um, and we love laws and we love boundaries and we love to specify how to do X, Y, and Z. But if we really want to get down to the core of it, Jesus really told us to love each other. Any more than that, and we start to get, start to tread in dangerous ground because we don't know. Just because John said he said it, if Mark, Luke, and Matthew didn't say he said it, did he say it? Maybe. Do you want to bet your entire way of being Christian on that? It's probably a little too small, right? God is always bigger than we think. And if you ever find yourself arguing for God's smallness, just that should be a red flag to you to maybe reconsider that God's bigger than, than that. Sorry, complete, total tangent. Let's keep on moving. Gabriel comes to Zechariah. Zechariah is mute. Zechariah goes home. Elizabeth gets pregnant. And it gets the whole ball rolling toward Jesus. While Elizabeth is pregnant, Gabriel is busy, shows up in Nazareth to Mary. Call this the Annunciation. Gabriel shows up to Mary. And if you go to Nazareth today, there are at least three places people say Gabriel showed up to Mary. But Gabriel appears and we get just about one of the best passages in all of scripture, right? Mary is an incredible character. And Mary is incredible well beyond Christianity. Mary's inspired people in many, many traditions. In fact, those of you who have, may not have ever studied Islam, there is one book in Islam named for a woman. Who? Mary. Mary is so huge and important. And we know that especially in the old traditions, like Roman Catholicism and Orthodox traditions, Mary is huge. Mostly because Mary represents perhaps the best of us, right? 
Jesus, God incarnate, fully human, fully divine, right? We can't be Jesus. We can try. But Mary is a human person. She's got, well, any Catholics in here? Sorry. Mary's got the, the capacity to make mistakes like us. Mary responds to Gabriel with this strength and this humility, right? That Zechariah, a priest of the temple, could not muster, right? But here is this girl, and by many accounts, Mary is a child, right? I mean, 14, maybe, 15. She's, she is of age, which just simply means she can bear children. And when she is of age, then she's going to be married off. And she is engaged to be married to Joseph, but not married yet. And when Gabriel appears to her again, scary Gabriel, Mary, with this just calm strength, says one of the best poems, period, right? Magnificat is gorgeous. And it's been, I, 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 countless music settings have been set to it. And one of the most incredible places in the Holy Land to me is a place called Ein Karim. Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. When Mary hears that Elizabeth is pregnant, there's this wonder in Mary, right? Because Elizabeth shouldn't be, okay? Mary's a little too young. Elizabeth's a little too old. And so they need to get together and celebrate this. And so Mary sets out on a journey to visit Elizabeth. Nazareth and Ein Karim, which is outside of Jerusalem where Elizabeth lives, are a good 80 miles apart. All right, 80 miles is not insurmountable, but Mary, who faces off with this scary angel and just says, I am the Lord's servant, right? Then gets up on a donkey or a horse or whatever and rides herself 80 miles through the country to go visit Elizabeth. Mary is no weakling, right? She's kind of killer. And so Mary says, yes, she's pregnant. She travels a road. I mean, this is not, this is not like getting in your car and driving, you know, 80 miles, right? This would have been multiple days. There are no rest stops or hotels. So she is sleeping wherever she can, maybe even exposed. And she's a kid pregnant out of wedlock making this journey, right? This is risky for her. She doesn't know anybody in Jerusalem, right? She's a Nazareth girl, but she's going to see her cousin who is pregnant and shouldn't be by God so that they can celebrate. And she gets to Ein Karim and she speaks and John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. As a kid, that is one of my only clear memories of the entire, script, of the entire Bible story. Something about John leaping in Elizabeth's womb was so affecting to me because it, is, it goes beyond us. God is just everywhere, right? Including in this unborn baby. And Elizabeth and Mary meet and they celebrate God's goodness, what God's done to both of them, for both of them. And in Ein Karim today, which is up at the top of the hill, the Magnificat has been translated into 
gosh, I have to think 150 or more languages. Those of you who have been there might know the exact number. But the entire poem is on wall after wall after wall in courtyards and in the house and all the stuff. The same text in every language of the world. It's incredible. And so this is a, an impactful story because Mary and Elizabeth are the ways that God begins this work in the world. A miraculous pregnancy twice is what introduces God doing stuff when God has been silent. That's the, one, the last point I want to make to you. God has, for a few hundred years, sort of been silent. All right, That is the story that we inherit at the beginning of Luke, is that the people came back from exile, the Jews, they rebuilt their temple, and if you finish the end of the Old Testament, there is a pointing toward Jesus. There is a pointing toward a Messiah. Did you know that... So, one thing I did not say last week, we're not studying the Old Testament right now, but I do not call our Old Testament the Hebrew Bible. And let me tell you why. The books are different. They are not the same. They're not the same total books. They are also not in the same order. And so if you want to read the Hebrew Bible, you can, but it is not ordered the same way as the Old Testament. And so to make a distinction between the two canons, I do use the phrase Old Testament, and it's not derogatory. It's just to define it as separate than what the Hebrew Bible would be. And the reason it's reordered is because in the Hebrew Scripture, the end is sort of an end. There is a nice arc of the story beginning to end. Those books were kind of flipped around at the back because in our Old Testament, the ark is not over. The ark points toward the coming of the Messiah. And you turn the page and it's Matthew, boom. But there's a few hundred years there between when those stories were written and when the gospels were written or when Jesus was born. The same sort of thing happens with another big, important person. So remember, Gabriel comes to Zechariah. Zechariah says, how can this be? We're old. You would think of Abraham and Sarah. In the rest of this chapter, there is this indication that God is doing something new and miraculous times two. When God has been silent for hundreds of years, who is that? I'll help you. What happens in chapter 2 with Herod? Because remember, Luke did not divide this into chapters and verses, right? This is just a story. So if we were to go a little bit into chapter 2 and to see what Herod does when he finds out about a new king being born, he wants to kill the babies. What is that story altogether? Moses, thank you, Moses. So in one chapter, we have been linked to both Abraham and Sarah and Moses. Anybody who knows the Jewish story would immediately pick up on these overtones and would understand implicitly that even though there are specifics to the story about Elizabeth and Mary, what the storyteller is really saying is this 
changes everything. God is back. God is doing something huge again, but in a new way. And so you want to find out about this Jesus. So just for everyone to hear that, um, we will have this fixed mostly um, because we'll start at 1030. You won't really overlap in a carpool, but that's, that's what this is, is there are some carpool spaces being blocked out front for the preschool. So back to kind of close that off again. This is something new, something exciting. You want to keep reading. And so we'll end today there. And let's, I'd love to close in just a special prayer before we all get up and leave. So one more time, let us pray. God, we appreciate the time to be together, to reinforce old friendships and to make new ones. We come to you especially today in thanksgiving for the life that we share. And we pray for all those affected by the shooting in Las Vegas, those families changed forever, those children who might have more fear than they should. We ask you to keep our world safe. Make us agents of change that we can help love our neighbors as best we can in all to your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. I'll see you next week at 1030.